Turn it with me, if you would, in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And let's pick up in verse 20. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept? For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. What a wonderful passage to open up with this morning. Some of you have been witnessing to your loved ones, your moms, your dads, your sisters, your brothers, and sharing the Gospel with them. And this is a wonderful uh, truth to know. You know it for yourself and you want to, to know it for them. But now is Christ risen from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead separates, it's one of many things, okay? But we'd have to say it's one of the main uh, blessings, miracles, wonders, glories of the Christian faith that separates Christianity from every other faith. Our Savior died and rose again for a purpose and is testified historically to this fact that, that this happened. Without question, the greatest and most significant life that was ever lived on this planet was the life of Jesus Christ. Nobody could argue with that. Even people that don't uh, aren't Christians. The life that's influenced this planet and humanity more than any other life over the history of mankind, over the history of this planet, has been the life of Jesus Christ. And the most significant and glorious and victorious part of His life on the earth. So we're looking at the most glorious life ever lived. And significant life ever lived was Christ. And the most significant, glorious, victorious part of His life was His resurrection from the dead. We could say His death, His burial, and His resurrection from the dead the third day. He was born of a virgin. He had a sinless life. That spoke of his birth, and then he had uh, that spoke of his birth. Then he had a sinless life, and he had words of life that he spoke. And even the people around him scratched their heads and said, "No man ever spoke like this man spake before." His words of life, his wondrous works that he did, his ministry on this planet, which was again for only three and a half years, he lived thirty-three and a half years. But thirty of those years, he was the carpenter's son. He was basically not uh, revealed to mankind. But for three and a half years, this life influenced this planet and humanity for all time. But no, no comparison to all the other lives if you would stack them up on top of each other and, and put their influence uh, together, it wouldn't touch what Jesus has done for man. His miracles, His power, His perfect love for mankind. You know what? It all culminated in His death on the cross. It all culminated on a rugged cross on a hill outside of, of Jerusalem. And it culminated in His resurrection from the dead. And I thank the Lord for that. His love was most perfectly displayed in His sacrificial death. The Bible says, greater love hath no man than this than a man lay down his life for his for his friends. Herein was His love. Uh, and God commended His love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's just an amazing thing. It really is. We love people that love us. Or we can tolerate people that maybe tolerate us. But to love people and to die for people 
that are sinning against you for them and they don't even care that you're dying for them. I mean, think about it for a second. People weren't like, thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. We're so wicked and bad. He's dying for sinners that are mocking Him. He's dying for people that are saying it's good. He, he said He saved others. Let Him save Himself. If He's the Son of God, let Him come down off of that cross. And, but the, He's saying, forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. Uh, the, the love of Jesus Christ, the love of God, was most clearly displayed through the death of Jesus Christ, His crucifixion on the cross. Our Lord came to this earth about 2,000 years ago for a reason. We sang about it. I appreciate the songs that, that the Lord gave Dee for us to sing this morning in our worship. He came for a reason. He came for a purpose. A glorious, holy purpose. How many people do you know they're seeking meaning in life? A lot of people are so caught up in just living that they don't even think of any purpose in life, but a lot of people seek meaning in life. But Jesus came for a glorious purpose. One solitary, single purpose. The first time that He came. From the cradle to what? To the cross. Just think about it. From the cradle to the cross. And then from the cross to the crown. From the cradle to the cross was His first coming. He was and is the Lamb of God who was slain from the foundation of the world. This was not an afterthought. Jesus Christ died on the cross, being born of a virgin, living a sinless life, being taken by wicked hands and crucified on a cross for sinful men was not an afterthought. Uh, that The Lord's like, uh, I forgot Dave Hunt used to say, it's not like an ambulance rushing to the scene of an accident on the interstate. And a lot of times we think of it that way. He was the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. When He came into this earth, He came for a holy purpose. He came for a glorious purpose. And He was not deterred from that. He was not distracted from that. He wasn't preempted from completing it. He went all the way from the cradle to the cross. And nothing stopped Him from doing it. And from the cross, rose again to the crown that He has now. The Bible says, and we're not going to read the whole passage or, or quote it, but from Philippians 2, it says, in, in, uh, He humbled Himself, being found in fashion as a man. That spoke of His incarnation. He humbled Himself and became obedient unto death, even the death on the cross. Wherefore, God also has highly exalted Him. Right? Given Him a name above every name. He came to be the Savior of the world. He came to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is a sinful world. I'm a sinful human being. We're all sinners. Some we could say are worse than others, but in God's eyes, there's, there's none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You say, well, I'm not a Osama bin Laden or Adolf uh, Hitler or someone like that. But all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every man needs a Savior. And there's not a bunch of Saviors. There's not even a handful of Saviors. There's one Savior. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by Me. How did He save us? He came from the cradle to the cross. He came from heaven, robed Himself in a human form, found in the fashion of a man. He humbled Himself. He became obedient. I was just studying this last night. He was obedient. That means He was under authority and He was subject to that authority and totally at the, at the uh, command 
of that authority. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death. Even the death on the cross. When it puts that little phrase, even the death on the cross, it's magnifying the, uh, I guess the pain, it's magnifying the humility of that type of death. On the cross was only where the worst of the worst died. That was for capital punishment. That was for the criminals in the Roman Empire. That was a cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree, the Bible says. And yet he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. He became a curse for us, though he never sinned himself. He became that for us and died on the cross for our sins. And so um, he sinless himself, yet he died for sinful men. He was and is the final, sufficient, satisfactory sacrifice for the sins of the world. We need to know that. We need to think about the bigness of that. We need to think, think about the glory and the greatness of that. There's no more blood that has to be shed for forgiveness or remission of man's sins. Christ did it. We need to put our trust in Him. If you don't know Him, you need to put your trust in Him. If you do know Him, you need to walk in Him. But there's not another sacrifice for sins. He died sinless Himself, yet for sinful man. Have you ever read the word, maybe on a doctrinal statement of a church, uh, vicarious and atoning death? Vicarious means in place of. That means in our stead or in our place. Who should have been the one to die for my sins? I should have been the one to die for my sins. A thousand deaths over, okay? For my sin against the Holy God. I'm without excuse. And yet He took my place. He said, no, Randy, I've taken your place and died in your stead. I've died in your place. And multiply that by, by the, the humanity. Every man, woman, and child, whether they accepted Christ or rejected Christ, He took their sin and their place. He died in our stead, sinless Himself. And I would say, though, often misunderstood. I know I say it all the time that people give different reasons why Jesus came. He came to be a great teacher. He came to be a revolutionary and show us a better way. Maybe there's some truth in all of these things. But if you asked Him from the Word of God, Jesus, why did You come? He came to be the Savior of the world. That's why. He didn't come to start a religion. He didn't come to start a political movement. He didn't start to, uh, come to, to, uh, to overthrow the Roman government. He didn't come for any of those reasons. He came to be the Savior of the world. It's bigger than all those things. By far. Okay? He came to seek and save the lost. He said, I've come to destroy the works of the devil. His own hold of sin. Sin's hold upon your life. And the power that He has over sinful men. Okay? That are lost. He came to break that stronghold and to set us free. He was misunderstood and even by his, fo his followers had incomplete knowledge. They knew up to what they knew. You know what I mean? And it was correct a lot often, but even by his followers, but he knew. If you were to ask Jesus, there was no confusion, no ambiguity. He knew why he came to this earth. He came for a holy purpose. He came to be, uh, he knew why he as the eternal word became flesh 2,000 years ago. While he, while he left His glory, the glory and splendor that He had in heaven, He didn't ever cease to be God, but He did leave that glory and took on Him the humble, humble form of humanity 
and a human servant who was subject even to his own earthly parents, subject to them. And he knew why he came. I just want to read this verse from John 12, 27. Jesus said, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. He was about to go to the cross. And he says, My soul is troubled, but should I say, Save me from this hour? He says, This is the cause, for this cause came I to this hour. In other words, he's saying, I knew. I know why I'm here. I know why I'm at this point in my life. That was right down, right at the time when he was about to go to the cross. He knew it. There wasn't a point of being saved from that. He was troubled. I don't think it was, it was anything pleasurable for him in the flesh to go to the cross. And yet he knew why, while he was here. And his earthly life climaxed in his re- crucifixion and in his glorious resurrection. It was a bodily resurrection the third day. And I, and I say bodily because that's how he rose. And I say bodily because it's important that we believe that. Because other religions and spiritual people could say, well, he, he rose spiritually. You know what I mean? And just like, like any believer, you know, say you have a loved one that's going on to be with the Lord and their body's in the grave. And we say, well, spiritually, they're with the Lord. And they are. That is true. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But he rose bodily. And he rose uh, gloriously. And he triumphed over sin. My death doesn't triumph over sin. No other man's death, even good men, have not triumphed over sin. But when he, when he rose from the dead the third day, there was a victory that was displayed in that. There was a victory that was manifest in that. Where he's triumphing over the grave. It's like he's putting his heel down on it. You know, and just... I've triumphed over the grave. And I've proved it. There was never any doubt that he would. But he did it. It's historical. He did it. He won that victory. He triumphed over death. And over Satan. And over sin. And over the grave. And as Jesus hung on the cross. He hung between heaven and earth. Right? Literally, he's lifted up from the earth. On a cross. He hung between heaven and earth. He he hung between two criminals. A thief on either side that was justly being punished for their crimes. But as he hung there, he made the statement, one of the some of the statements that he made from the cross, one of those was, It is finished. It is finished, right? It is finished. He completed why he came. He offered himself to God without spot or blemish. He offered himself to God, saying, Okay. Father, You require a sacrifice for sins. You provided me as Your sacrifice. I've offered myself willingly back to You in obedience to You. My whole life was sinless. And now in death I'm sinless and I'm offering myself back to You. And the Father accepts that. He finished what He came to do. He told Pilate, Jesus, when He was arrested and just hours before He was going to be crucified, Pilate says, don't you know I have power to save your life or to take your life? I have power over you? Jesus says, you you have no power over my life. Just what's given to you. You have no authority over my life. I laid down my life and... A lot of people could say that. Don't people die every day? 
don't martyr die for different causes every day. Not only did he lay down his life, but he told Pilate, I have power to lay down my life and I have power to take it up again. This commandment or this authority have I received of my Father. This sets him apart. One of many things, everything about Jesus sets him apart from any other man that ever lived on this planet. But he says it's finished and he came he accomplished what he came to do, to be the propitiation. We talk about that word. It's a Bible word. We don't use it pretty much in any other, not that I know, any other conversation or topic. Propitiation for sin means an atoning victim. An atoning victim. He paid the price to cover our sins. He paid the price as a victim to, to be the propitiation for the sins of all men for all time. All men for all time. It is amazing. I don't even grasp it all myself. But one life and one death and one resurrection, how it has affected men even before the cross that hoped in His coming, right? That trusted and looked forward to His coming. Those during His day. The Bible says when He, when he came up, uh, that when he, uh, the, the graves of many were open and came alive and, sh- and, and showed themselves to people in Jerusalem. It was an amazing thing. His death, His burial, His resurrection. What happened? But He died that we might live. He died that we might live. We're talking about His purpose for coming. That we might live not only long to some good old ripe age on this planet. He died that we might live abundantly and eternally. Free from sin. Because the sin and life don't go together. The wages of sin is death. Sin and life. Okay, People live in sin, but they're, they're dead while they live, the Bible says. They don't realize. The sinner doesn't know uh, while they're just walking in their sin. They think they're living it up. This is life. But the Bible says they're dead while they live. The Bible says that the wrath of God abides upon them. And that... Uh, the wages of sin is death. In the end, the fruit of their doings is going to earn them death. Not only dying and going in a grave, but dying and going to hell. Dying being separated from God forever. That's what the Scripture says. But He came to give us life more abundant, abundantly and free and eternally. Everything about Christ's first coming 2,000 years ago that we celebrated Christmas time, His birth. Everything about His first advent or first coming pointed to His death. Everything about that life was to end in that sacrificial death. The whole thing. Everything about it pointed to that. And I just want to read this from Isaiah um, 53. It says, he, he was brought as a lamb to the slaughter. He, the Father, shall see the travail of His soul, of Jesus' soul. This was written 800 years, by the way, or roughly before Jesus ever died on the cross. And shall be satisfied. By His knowledge shall my righteous servant, that's Jesus, justify many, for He shall bear their iniquities. He's going to bear it. What does it bear it mean? He carries it. He bears it away. He carries it away. He takes it from the, from the burden bearer, which is you and me, bearing our sin. He takes it from us and He bears it and does away with it. He put it away. That's why He says it's finished. It was Everything was done to perfection. Everything was done in His life and death to perfection. And, he, and listen, everything about that first coming spoke about His death and then His resurrection. Um, I'll just read this from Luke 24. 
And as they were afraid, this is resurrection morning, and bowed down their faces to the earth, they said unto them, There's two angels by the tomb. The stone's been rolled away like Chris read. Why seek ye the living? This is a different gospel. Why seek ye the living among the dead? Why do you seek Jesus Christ who's living? Why are you looking at a place of tombs and graves? You're looking for a living man in a place where only dead men are residing. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. Aren't you glad that He's not there? Aren't you glad that we can't go to Jerusalem, find the tomb where He was, find His bones in there, and there's not some you know, shrine set up to Him there, and people bowing down and want to kiss His bones or touch His bones or something like that. Aren't you glad that He's not dead? Why do, we, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how He spake unto you when He was yet in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. Don't you remember He told you this? This is what He's saying to the disciples. This is what the angels are saying to the disciples and the women and those that showed up at the tomb on resurrection morning. Everything was done in perfect fulfillment of the Scriptures and the prophecies, everything about His life, His death, his burial, and y'all listen, he had to rise again. Y'all know that he had to. He had to. It's essential. As I said, martyrs have died. What we would consider good men and soldiers laying down their lives to save others in their company or their platoon or, or whatever or to, for our nation. I'm thankful for that. Selfless acts of heroism and so forth. But Jesus, to be the Savior of the world, had to rise again. He had to rise again from the dead. And He did this in perfect fulfillment of the Scriptures. He is living and He is life. Jesus told uh, Mary and Martha when their brother was dead, Lazarus, we know the story, in the tomb, uh, been there for four days, His body was decaying. He knew what He was about to do. To, to them, it's just another sad, it's a sad day. Their brother's died. People are wailing. People are mourning. He's been dead for four days. Nothing happy about it. Oh, spiritually we know he's going to be with, he'll go to rise in the last day and so forth. But everything else speaks of death and gloom and sorrow and brokenheartedness and so forth. Hopelessness. It was hope while he was living that you could have healed him. But he's died now. And he's been dead. And his body is decaying. And Jesus knowing in himself what he's about to do because he has power to do it and he wants to do it. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And then he goes on to say, he that, and he that liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Do you believe this? It's a question of faith. He is who he says he is. He is the resurrection and the life. Do you believe it? Do I believe it? And do I believe it to the point I've given my life to him? And I've been forgiven and cleansed and saved by this risen Savior and Lord who died and rose again. He is the resurrection and the life. He is living and He is life. And He is the God of the living. Just listen to this Scripture. If you're taking notes, it's from Romans chapter 14, verse 9. For to this end, Christ both died and rose and revived that He might be Lord both of the living, dead and the living. He is a living God and He's the 
He is the God of the living. He gives life to all that put their trust in Him. Now I'll say this, we're talking about, obviously this is an Easter sermon, and about the resurrection of Jesus. But His resurrection was further proof. And you could say the greatest proof, probably, of His deity. It was evidence that He was God in the flesh. It was evidence to all. His resurrection proclaims to all His eternal power and Godhead. He is who He says He is. He was who He said He was. He is who He claimed to be. Have you ever known people, maybe just in history or life, or claimed to be something and they weren't that? They weren't that. They claimed to be something and, and their life later proved or their death later proved that they weren't at all what they claimed to be. They weren't a superhero. They weren't of this. They weren't of that. They were just a person. But Jesus' life and death and resurrection from the dead proved, it's evidence that He was who He said He was. He said before Abraham was, I am. I am is a name for God. When Moses was at the burning bush in the wilderness in Midian and a shepherd and God was about to get him and send him in to be his deliverer to deliver his people Israel out of slavery. And Moses says, "Who would, when, when I tell the, the Hebrews that God spoke to me, what, what will I say your name is? Who will I say sent me? You tell him I am has sent you. That's a name of God. It's an eternal name of God. Jesus said before Abraham was, I am. And then he, so he claims to be God. Don't listen to anybody that says, modern theologians that say, well, Jesus wasn't God, or that said that Jesus never claimed to be God. He was God in the flesh, and He claimed to be God. Okay? His resurrection was proof that He was who He said He was. He was the eternal life, way, the truth, and the life. He had to rise from the dead. He was not simply another martyr, as I said, who died in a failed cause. Think about that. He's not another martyr who died in a failed cause. But He is the eternal Son of God. He was the eternal Son of God before He came to earth. Eternally past. I said that always blows my mind to think about that. Somehow or another, I think once things start, they can keep going. But to think that there was no beginning has a, a hard time on my mind you know, to grasp that. But by faith we believe it, right? He is God from eternity past. He was eternally the Son of God. The second person of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And Him coming to this earth and rising from the dead after He died is further proof of that. Listen to this in, in Matthew 16. Jesus said He would die and rise again. So therefore He had to, right? He had to do it. I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again. Matthew 16, 21. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto His disciples how that He must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. It wasn't a secret. He said, I'm going to die. He said whose hands He was going to die at. Uh, and then he said when he was going to rise. I'm going to rise and it's going to be on the third day. There's at least three places in Scripture 
We read one from Luke. That was Matthew, where Jesus said this. So he said he would, and he did. He had to, and he did. And it says in Luke 24, and as they were... I'm sorry, I read that already. Uh, in Acts, I want you to, uh, to turn with me, if you would, in the book of Acts to chapter 2. Now we know what's happened in Acts chapter 2. This is the day of Pentecost. This is when... Uh, the Lord had poured out His Spirit and Peter begins to preach. He's the, it's the first New Testament uh, church age sermon. Okay? It's a Gospel sermon. He preaches Christ and the resurrection. Alright? So let's look at Acts chapter 2, verse 23. So this part of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. Him, speaking of Christ, Jesus being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. So first of all, he's saying this was God's plan and determined purpose. You've taken by wicked hands. Even though God gave him freely, it was still wicked hands that took him and put him on the cross. Alright? And let's keep reading. Verse 24. Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it or held by it. Verse 29. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Wherefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on the throne, he seeing this before spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. One more verse, verse 36. Therefore, let, us, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. He preached the resurrection and he's using the re resurrection as proof that the one that they crucified, had they known there was, he was the Lord, they wouldn't have crucified him. Right? That was the wisdom of the world, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, that the, the world in its wisdom crucified the Lord. Alright? Had they known, they, they would not have. But, but they didn't know. And God used the resurrection of Jesus and the preaching of that resurrection as proof that David, who all the, the nation of Israel admired and held in the highest regard, and they should, but he was dead and buried and his grave was right there and they could all go visit it. But Jesus died and rose again the third day. And you're not going to go find his body in the tomb. It was proof and evidence of who he was. Later in the book of Acts, when Paul, who was not a believer at this time, that we just read on the day of Pentecost, later became a believer. He's preaching in Athens on Mars Hills to, to Gentiles and all the philosophers. When he preached of Christ and the resurrection, they mocked. But some believed, right? Some mocked. Some said that's interesting, we'll think about it. But some believed and they clung to him. And they were believers. The resurrection is a keystone. It is the most important part of the life of Jesus was his death on the cross and his bodily resurrection. The Bible says, but God has appointed, because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he has ordained. 
whereof he has given assurance unto all men, and that he hath raised him from the dead. What did you say? What is the assurance to all men that Christ is the man that he ordained? What is the assurance that he's given to all men that Christ is the Savior of the world? And it's an assurance for all men, Jews and Gentiles and young and old and different races and religions, the assurance that Christ has ordained that man to be the judge of the world, and the Savior of the world, wherein he has given assurance unto all men and that he has raised him from the dead. The resurrection from the dead. Easter, you know it, is not about chocolate bunnies and, and Reese's, which I love, the little Reese's things. It's not about all of that. Uh, it's not about the, the bunny hopping around and coming at night. Uh, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with you do, if you do that. I'm saying Easter is about the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, from the dead. And that resurrection, y'all, is everything. It's, it's everything. And the Bible says that it was not possible. Peter said he rose from the dead because it was not possible that he should be held of death. Now think about that. He's talking about the glory and the power of the Lord. It was not possible that he should be holden of it. It wasn't even possible that death could hold down the God of God, the creator of all things the Lord of all creation, the eternal God, that death is going to hold him down? He's greater than that. And he proved that he was greater than that. The Bible says, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. I thank the Lord that he's risen from the dead. Listen, y'all, a dead God cannot save anyone. Just like an idol. There's really no difference. If you built a statue, a totem pole, you know, like the Indians would do, or a graven image like we read about in the Bible, or some shrine, or some Buddha statue, or something like that, it's just a lifeless object. And people worship it as though it's above them. It has more power than them. It can help them and bless them with health and maybe eternal life or whatever. And it cannot. It's dead. And a dead God cannot save anyone, okay? A dead God cannot lift anyone out of sin, deliver anyone, or give anyone eternal life. A dead God cannot give life to anyone. He had to rise from the dead, amen? Uh, only a living God can, and that's our Lord. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He has become the first fruits of them that slept. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians. We open with that verse. He, he not only rose from the dead, now is Christ risen from the dead. And He's become, He's like ushered in a new thing for mankind, following Him. Or they come through Him as the doorway. Sorry, so He rose from the dead and conquered death and the grave and sin and hell. And all that put their faith in Him, He said He's become the first fruits of them that slept. First fruits. It's like a little signal of what's to come. I got the first little cherry blossom or the little first little pecan bud or whatever, the first tomato on the tomato plant is the first fruit of all that's going to come. It's coming. The fruit's coming. It's fruit unto eternal life. It's fruit unto a resurrected life like His life. And it comes through Christ. Like I said, even Old Testament saints that look forward to Him coming, they died by faith in Jesus even though they never saw Him on this earth. And He, Christ, in His resurrection, didn't just rise and it's a, soul, uh, 
a, a, a solitary act that has no effect upon us. It has every effect upon us. It has every effect upon us. He's become the first fruits of them that slept, the Bible says. And uh, the Bible says that God, that Abraham believed in God who quickeneth the dead. And this is Old Testament. Abraham believed in God when he had no child yet. He's getting older. His wife's getting older. She's barren. He's 100. She's 90 by this time now. But the Bible says he believed and God who quickeneth the dead. Think about that little part of the phrase. And calleth those things which be not as though they were. Sin is that one thing. Sin is that one thing that separates man from God. It brings death to mankind. The world, death entered into the world by one man and death by sin. And that's what the Scriptures teach us. But life came through Christ. Our Lord proclaimed that He was God and He proved that He was God. Even as all of hell tried to stop him. Don't, don't forget this, that the God of this world and Satan, they knew who Jesus was. When Jesus went to the island, uh, sailed across the, the sea and there the Gadarenes and that man, demoniac, possessed with the demons and the tombstones, he ran to Jesus. He'd been demon-possessed all his life. Runs to Jesus, falls at his knees and says, what have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou son of, uh, Jesus of Nazareth? Son of God, that the demons even knew who he was. And all along the way, they tried to stop him. You know, Satan wanted to stop him from what he came to do tempt him to sin, right? In the temptation of the wilderness. Uh, take his life some other way than a sacrificial life on the cross. Let's have him stoned. We'll stone Jesus before he makes it to the cross. None of that happened. And Satan was. Helpless and all of hell helpless as they watched the stone rolled away. And, and Jesus, that the tomb being empty, and the Lord rising gloriously and triumphantly over the grave. I want you to turn with me and read this in Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27, 62. Now the next day that followed, the day of the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees came together unto Pilate. So this is the day after. Uh, after Jesus had died, and the chief priests came and they said to Pilate, Sir, we remember that that deceiver, that's what they're calling Jesus, while he was yet alive, said that after three days I will rise again. Command therefore that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say unto the people, He is risen from the dead. So the last there shall be worse than the first. So you understand the point. We heard, they even heard, even his enemies heard him say that he was going to rise again from the dead. And he's a deceiver, is what they're saying. So they, they go to Pilate, who's the Roman governor, and they say, give us a security over the tomb, guards, let's post guards there, and also put a seal. They put like the wax seal on the, the opening of the tomb so that if it was broken, it would be obvious that it was broken. Because we don't want, we want it to be sure that his disciples don't come steal him and promote this big hoax that Jesus is risen from the dead. And so they commanded this watch. Well, Pilate, the governor, not a believer himself, Pilate said unto them, you have, have a watch. In other words, you have what you want. Go your way. Make it as sure as you can. They, the Romans knew how to do this kind of thing. Amen? They knew about security and military and guards and watchmen and trained soldiers and 
loyalty and all of that stuff. Okay? So they went and made the sepulchre sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. But the stone was empty and the stone was rolled away. And the angel said, why do you seek the living among the dead? Death could not hold him. It could not hold him. And what does it say in Acts chapter, uh, I'll just read it, 1 chapter 3. Luke writes this, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion or after his crucifixion by many, what? You know the, the phrase, infallible proofs. Luke was not just some fly-by-night kind of guy. Uh, actual secular historians, Will Durant is one that I remember reading this quote from, who is recognized as the most uh, proficient, whatever you want to say, expert historian ever. Will Durant, and I honestly don't know if he's a Christian or not a Christian, he said that Luke was the, the most uh, proficient historian in history. Luke, the physician Luke, read the Gospel of Luke, and he wrote the book of Acts. The details, the history that's been verified, and going back and researched and proven that Cyrenius was the governor at this time, and so and so was the Tetrarch, and all the stuff that we blow by when we're reading through the Bible, we don't pay that much attention to. And Luke wrote this in Acts. He showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, that's the time between his resurrection and ascension, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. He appeared unto those on the Maus Road, which we can look at. He appeared unto five hundred brethren at once. Five hundred people at once, it says in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 15. That's an amazing thing. Somebody that died and rose again, this is not a spoof. It's not a hoax. 500 people at one time he appeared to. It could have easily been checked out by the scoffers or the, the skeptics. An investigative reporter would say, go and investigate some of these things and find it not to be true. You understand what I'm saying? And it was, it was many infallible proofs. What, we're going to close with this thought. What is the significance of his resurrection? We've talked about it as being a fact. We said, he said He would do it. He did it. Nobody else did it. Jesus raised others from the dead, but no one ever raised themselves from the dead. Okay? Uh, what is the significant or benefit to men? What is the blessing of Christ's resurrection to our lives right now today? I would say everything. The Bible would say everything. I like the Scriptures say much in every way. Okay? It is the greatest of the greatest benefit and immeasurable blessing to all who come to Him by faith. The benefit's there for the taking. Eternal life is there for the having. A relationship with the Creator of the world is there for the taking. Uh, forgiveness of sins. All of it. Deliverance from the power of sin. It's all for those who put their trust in this resurrected Lord. The blessings that come come by faith to the most the humblest repentant sinner who falls on their knees and falls upon that rock. The Bible says he's the rock of salvation. He's a stone which the builders, builders rejected. The same has become the chief cornerstone. That's the rock that he built his church upon. Jesus Christ, 
and the profession of faith that Peter made, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, well said, uh, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. And I say that, that you're Peter, and uh, you know I'm going to change your name to Peter, and upon this rock, he says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Upon that profession. Jesus Christ is the sinner's perfect plea, like the hymn says. He's the one that we plead to and cry out to. Mercy, forgiveness, salvation, help, lifting me out of a horrible pit like David said. We cry to Him and cry to Him alone. We're not crying to a dead God or a tomb with a bag of bones in it somewhere, kissing them and saying, can I take a little bone home with me? Maybe there'll be some magic potion that'll help me out. We're calling to a God who sits on a throne who is greater than death, who conquered over death and hell. And that humble sinner that calls on the perfect plea of Jesus is saved, is forgiven, is justified fully by the grace of God and accepted in, in the beloved, accepted into the family of God. The sins are washed away. And that's the only thing that separates us from God. The sins are put away. He did it already. But He rose again so He can save people now. He's a, he's a Savior now. Now is Christ risen from the dead. Guess what? He can save people today. You have somebody in your family that needs saving? Do you need saving? He can save today. He's a living God. What profit does it have? Christ's resurrection, what's the big deal? Uh, it, it's everything. It's life. Was the resurrection? Not only did Christ have life and has life, but it means life to me. It's life to me. This life is in His Son, John says. He that hath the Son of God has life. And he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. And this life is in His Son. Amen. This life is in His Son. And I thank the Lord for it. And I'm going to close with a couple of Scriptures. The, Jesus said, because I live, because, cause, okay? Because I live, ye shall live also. So what effect does the resurrection have on us? Everything. Life. It's literally life or death. His life or death and resurrection is everything to my life. Because I live, ye shall live also. <clears throat> the, Jesus said, neither can they die anymore. Speaking about children of faith or children of God. Neither can they die anymore for they are equal unto the angels and are the children of God being the children of the resurrection. Amen? And I, I want to close with this thought. I was just reading this. I just... A little bit of trivia. And then I have a verse. It's trivia, but it's for a point. It's been pointed out that the space given in the four Gospels to the death of Jesus Christ is most striking. Two of the Gospels, namely Mark and John, do not record the birth of Jesus. One does not relate His temptation in the wilderness, namely John. Two of the Gospels have no mention of the Sermon on the Mount, Mark and John. Two of the Gospels have no account of His ascension in heaven. But all the Gospels describe in great detail the fact of His crucifixion and resurrection. One third, listen to this, one third of the Gospel of Matthew, one third of Mark, one fourth of Luke is devoted to the account of His death and resurrection. One half, listen to this, of John's Gospel is dedicated to the last 24 hours of Christ's life. 
and resurrection. Half of the Gospel of John deals with the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. We said at the beginning it's the most significant life ever lived and the most significant part of his life ever lived with his, with his death and his resurrection on the earth. The Lord knows what he's stressing to us. And, and uh, see, the amount of space these four writers, four gospel writers, no one knows the Lord by the Holy Spirit that wrote it, but the amount of space that they wrote to the cross and his resurrection is evidence Okay, of the importance of the resurrection. I want to close with this thought. We know the story of the two on resurrection morning. We know one of them was Peter, for sure, because the Bible tells us that. In Luke 24, on the resurrection morning, the, the women that appeared, that, that Jesus appeared to at the empty tomb and the angels spoke to, they went hurriedly and told the disciples that Christ had risen. But they didn't see Him. The disciples, when they got there, didn't find Jesus. They found the empty tomb and his clothes and so forth, and uh, his burial clothes. And so two of the disciples are walking on this road to Emmaus on the resurrection day. Jesus draws alongside of them. They don't recognize him as being Jesus. I don't understand that fully, but they didn't know it was the Lord. <clears throat> and so he's walking with them, and he says, why, what are y'all talking about, and why are you so sad? They said, are you new around here? Have you not heard Jesus a man mighty in deeds and miracles? We thought for sure that he was going to be the Messiah. And I know I've shared this many times before, but there was a hopelessness. There was a despair. There was a disappointment. And they said, some of the women that we know said that he rose from the dead, but him have we not seen. And we're sad. It was like hope lost. I'm not saying they're horrible sinners or anything. I'm just saying they, their hope was lost. And Jesus rebukes them and says, O oh, fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have said. Ought not Christ have suffered these things and risen from the dead and entered into His kingdom and glory? And beginning at Moses at the prophet, and the prophecy begins to expound unto them all the things in the Scriptures concerning Himself. He takes the Old Testament Scriptures. He preaches Christ and the resurrection. So this was the deal. This was, this was the plan all along. You need to know the Word of God. You need to believe the Word of God. You need to know it and you need to believe it. And so they're walking along and maybe they get a little more excited and he breaks bread with them at the end of the day. And it says, and in the breaking of the bread, their eyes were open. They knew it was the Lord and He disappeared out of their sight and went somewhere else to appear to somebody else. But what, res what did the difference... Of what re the resurrection, what difference did it make in their lives? They went from being disappointed and sad and going to Emmaus. Maybe they're going back to their livelihoods that they had before. I don't know. But it made all the difference because they did a 180 and ran back and told all the other disciples that Christ has appeared to us. He's appeared to us. And they were excited and there was joy. And, and they, they went to, on to serve God and to live for God and die for God. The resurrection, even in the disciples' lives, made all the difference in the world. It turned them from hopelessness and despair and darkness and hope that's passed us by and we were disappointed. We must have been wrong. We're confused. We don't get it. Oh well. To, to living and dying for the Lord Jesus Christ. James, the, the half-brother of Jesus. It's interesting. He always points this out was not a believer in 
his half-brother Jesus, not a believer until after the resurrection. He became a follower after the resurrection. The resurrection, y'all, is everything. It means everything. And I'm going to close with this scripture. D, you can come on if you would. These altars are open. This is a scripture we hear at funerals a lot of times when it's a funeral for a believer. I think it's appropriate. I, I use it myself and I thank God for it. 1 Thessalonians 4.14 For if we believe that Jesus died, it doesn't stop there. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with Him. That is a rapture. That is a calling out. We're not just dead and die as believers. We have the gift of eternal life. Because He lives, we live. We shall live also. And even in a glorified body one day, that's future for us. But the resurrection means everything. Jesus said, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and was and is to come, the Almighty. I'm He that liveth and was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of hell and of death. What does it mean, the keys of hell and death? It means the authority. I have the authority. I have the power of hell and death. Satan doesn't have it. Okay? Satan doesn't have it. Satan's not the king of hell. Satan's not just going around doing whatever he wants, especially in the life of a believer. Jesus says, I have the keys of hell and death, and he conquered over it. He triumphed it personally. He did it. The resurrection is everything, y'all. It's everything to us. I just want to worship the Lord for some time this morning. If you don't know Jesus, I pray that you would come to. Come and talk to someone. We'll pray with you. I would love to talk to you and pray with you to give your life to Christ. If you know the Lord, can we come to these altars or make an altar where you are and say, Lord, I have not magnified Your resurrection from the dead to the extent that I should. I have not made it as prominent in my life, maybe in my own preaching and witnessing as I should. I know it's important, but maybe I didn't realize how important the Lord, Your Word says, now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. And so, Father, we want to thank You this morning. Your power, Your, your authority over even death. You said the last enemy to be destroyed for mankind is death. And You've already triumphed over death. We thank You, Lord, for that. We thank You for the forgiveness of sins that we have through faith in Jesus and You alone. The cleansing of sin by the blood of Jesus that You shed on Calvary's cross. The gift of life, abundant, eternal, and free. Instead, or in place of death. We thank You for that gift, God. We love You this morning. We are the children of the resurrection like we just read. And death has no power over our lives, God. It's all because of Jesus. It's all because of Your life and death and burial and resurrection, God. We love You this morning. We worship You in this house, God. In Jesus' name, thank You, Lord.